Welcome to You News, the podcast, using the power of Univision to bring the news that matters to you in English. Today is August 13th. I'm Carolina Saras, and these are today's headlines. The U.S. marking its deadliest day of the summer yet because of the pandemic. More than 1,500 deaths reported across the country. A new jobs report showing a slight improvement in the economy, but the numbers of those without a job still at record levels. And Joe Biden and Kamala Harris made their campaign debut as the president continues to attack the California senator and her place on the ticket. This and much more today on U News, transmitting live from our newsroom in Miami. We begin with this, the new Democratic ticket making their first appearance together in Delaware and making history. Both Harris and Biden arguing their case against President Trump and Vice President Pence, but the president not holding back, launching his own attacks. And Delinares has more details. The Biden campaign tweeting this montage of short snippets of Joe and Joe Biden, calling Kamala Harris and her husband Douglas Emhoff to offer Harris the VP job. Later, Biden and Harris making their debut as running mates. And immediately taking aim at President Trump and his handling of the coronavirus pandemic. There's a reason it has hit America worse than any other advanced nation. It's because of Trump's failure to take it seriously from the start. This is what happens when we elect a guy who just isn't up for the job. Our country ends up in tatters. Once fierce rivals on the debate stage, presumptive Democratic presidential nominee Biden and Harris are now working together towards one common goal, defeating President Trump in November. But from the White House, President Trump was quick to go into attack mode. I watched your poll numbers go boom, 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 down to almost nothing. And she left angry, she left mad. There was nobody more insulting to Biden than she was. She said horrible things about him. Biden already defending his vice presidential pick from Trump's insults. Donald Trump has already started his attacks, calling Kamala, quote, nasty. Is anyone surprised Donald Trump has a problem with a strong woman? Georgetown University Battlegrounds National Poll released on Monday showed that 43% of likely voters nationwide had a favorable view of Harris, with 36% holding an unfavorable view. Harris's favorable rating was up in Georgetown University polling from last October, when she stood at 35% favorable and 43% unfavorable. The president also portrayed Harris as too far left for the country and continued attempts to play up racist fears that a Biden presidency would sink the suburbs by expanding low-income housing. They're going to be opening up areas of your neighborhood and they're going to, in my opinion, destroy suburbia. The Biden campaign announced that it raised $26 million in the 24 hours since he named Senator Harris as his running mate. The California senator and Vice President Mike Pence will be debating on stage in Salt Lake City, Utah on October 7th. In Miami, Florida, Andrea Linares, U News. Thank you, Andrea, for that report from Miami. And as the criticism of the Trump administration's handling of the post office continues, President Trump said in an interview 
with Fox Business Network this morning that he does not want to fund the U.S. Postal Service because Democrats are seeking to expand absentee voting during the pandemic, making explicit the reason he has declined to approve $25 billion in emergency funding for that agency. Let's listen. They want $25 billion, billion for the post office. Now, they need that money in order to have the post office work so it can take all of these millions and millions of ballots. Now, in the meantime, they aren't getting there. By the way, those are just two items. But if they don't get those two items, that means you can't have universal mail-in voting. They want three and a half trillion dollars for the mail-in votes, okay, universal mail-in ballots. President Trump has complained about absentee ballots for months, and at a White House briefing on Wednesday, he argued without evidence that the post office role in the November election would become, quote, one of the greatest frauds in history. On Wednesday, the U.S. saw its, de its deadliest day since May. As the director of the CDC warns that we are facing the worst fall season in the public health history. Lorraine Casares has more details. The U.S. on Wednesday marking the deadliest day yet this summer, recording more than 1,500 coronavirus-related deaths. Dr. Robert Redfield, director of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, making an eye-opening statement, calling the coronavirus pandemic the greatest public health crisis to hit the nation in a century, adding, quote, we were underprepared. Dr. Redfield pleading with people to follow recommendations, warning if we don't, we risk facing the worst fall season in U.S. public health history. Meanwhile, the nation divided on how to proceed for the new school year. In Indiana, officials closing two schools after a student tested positive for COVID-19, the situation impacting 228 students. All over the country, school board meetings becoming increasingly contentious. In Arizona, some districts voting in favor of in-person instruction starting next week, even though the positivity rate there is still above 12 percent. On Wednesday, President Trump reiterating his push for reopening schools, announcing the federal government is providing up to 125 million masks to schools nationwide. My administration also stands ready to deploy CDC teams to support schools that are opening encouraging students and staff to use masks, but not issuing a mandate. The president also announcing a new White House coronavirus advisor, Thank Dr. Scott much. Atlas. A neuroradiologist, someone with no public health experience, uh, who has advocated for herd immunity, now advising the president of the United States. Herd immunity means one million dead Americans. That's what it would take to get to herd immunity. That's not a plan. That's a catastrophe. Atlas, a healthcare policy expert at the conservative Hoover Institution at Stanford University, has been a strong advocate for in-person schooling, saying back in June that not opening schools after the summer break was hysteria and ludicrous. Know that the risk of the disease is extremely low for children, even less than that of seasonal flu. We know that the harms of locking out the children from school are enormous. And we also know, as we all would agree, that educating America's children is right at the top of the list for our nation's priorities. So 
Meanwhile, the American Academy of Pediatrics releasing new guidelines today specifically regarding children and testing, saying highlighting the importance of testing children early, especially now that the flu season is picking up and symptoms can get very confusing. The Academy also advising that face coverings for children two years or older is completely safe. Carolina, back to you. Thank you, Lorraine, for that report and those recommendations. And joining me now is Dr. Carlos Del Rio. He's the Executive Associate Dean of Emory's University School of Medicine. Doctor, thank you so much for your time. Delighted to be with you, Carolina. Likewise, Dr. Emory University is participating in advanced trials of the Moderna vaccine, a critical time to know if the vaccine is effective. But you are concerned that not enough Latinos and black people are enrolled in these trials. Can you please explain why? Well, I think it's very important that the communities that have been mostly impacted by this pandemic, which are African-American and Hispanics, also get represented into the clinical trials. And I think we need to do a big effort and a big push to ensure that that is the case. So as fast as we want to recruit into this study, if we don't recruit enough underrepresented populations that have been disproportionately impacted, I don't think we have done our job. So we have to work with the community, we have to get their trust, and we have to really work hard to enroll them. And I am committed at my side that we would have a significant representation of both Hispanics and African-American in our studies. Doctor, as we have seen across the nation, Latinos are being hit the hardest by coronavirus. What needs to change? Well, you know, Latinos, eh, Carolina, as you know, uh, are frequently frontline workers. They're frequently people working in jobs that is very hard to to isolate yourself, to to do a uh, a work from home. Also, Latinos uh, frequently live in multi-generational households, right? So you have la abuelita living in the same house with the young children, and therefore the you know the young adolescent who gets infected brings the infection home and then makes the, the older uh, relative sick. Finally, they frequently live in, in small apartments, so you may have a family of, of six living in a two-bedroom apartment, and therefore there's a lot of crowding, and that leads to a higher risk of infection. If you add to that, uh, Latinos have a disproportionately high impact of diabetes and obesity, and those we know are diseases that increase your risk of having complications and a severe uh, illness from COVID. So all those things taken together uh, make the Hispanic population, the Latino population, particularly uh, vulnerable to COVID-19, not only of getting the disease, but also of dying from the disease. Doctor, the White House published new guidelines for school reopenings, but those, those rules are vague. They include things like encouraging the use of a mask, hand washing, and minimizing crowded rooms. Are those guidelines, in your opinion, enough to safely reopen schools? No, they're not, uh, Carolina. Unfortunately, I would start by saying that a lot of districts would be able to open safely. We need to look at the local epidemiology. So maybe in New York or in Connecticut, you could be opening safely. I think it's really important to look at your rate of transmission. And I would say if in your community, you have less than 10 and ideally less than five cases per 100,000 population, you should be able to open safely. And, and then those recommendations would be probably fine. But if you live in many communities in the U.S. Uh, where the rate of infection is much higher, higher than 10, I think, for example, in the state of Georgia, where the rate of infection is over 30 per 100,000 populations, 
then you either don't open or you open with very strong uh, uh, countermeasures. And that means you need to make masks mandatory. I think masks should be part of the school uniform, quite frankly, uh, this year. And you also need to encourage social distancing and hand washing and all those things to decrease the rate of transmission. Because if we don't do that, we will see infections. And we have seen that in Georgia where some of the schools have opened and very rapidly we've seen transmission happening. So encouraging masks is not enough. You have to put a mandate in those circumstances. Well, thank you so much for your time, Dr. Carlos del Rio, infectious disease expert at Emory University. Thank you so much. Delight, delighted to be with you. And now to Washington, where a new jobs report is in. The number of laid-off workers applying for unemployment fell below 1 million last week for the first time. But the number remains at a high level. The Labor, the Labor Department said applications fell to 963,000. It is the second straight drop from 1.2 million the previous week. The decline suggests that layoffs are slowing, but the figures from last week still exceed the pre-pandemic record of just under 700,000. There's a lot of confusion about the president's executive order regarding evictions, but despite claims from the White House, experts say the move does not exactly prohibit people from losing their homes. Diana Aponte explains. The pandemic has hit the pockets of millions of people who, upon losing their jobs, have been unable to meet their financial obligations, including paying rent or mortgages. I have not paid rent for two months now. Either I pay for food or rent, and that is one of the big realities we are living in. As part of the coronavirus relief package under the CARE Act, the federal government instituted a moratorium on evictions that likely helped millions, but it ended on July 24th. However, some states have created their own moratoriums. Last weekend, the president signed several executive orders and memoranda on protecting people from eviction and said he would protect those facing eviction, giving the impression that he would extend the moratorium or offer some kind of help. But the reality is that nowhere in the documents he signed is there a solution to this issue. It has no content, does not commit to any action plan, does not allocate funds to protect tenants, does not prohibit anything, does not prohibit any kind of eviction. The problem is that his comments gave false hope to many when in fact nothing has changed. He only suggested to the entities in charge to take the matter into account. Since the law was a moratorium and not a pardon, in two weeks those affected will have to pay or simply leave the property they occupy. No, there is no law protecting the tenant from not paying rent. In fact, the purpose of the lease is the payment of rent, and if there is no payment of the rent, then there is no lease. The only option is to negotiate with the landlord to see if he or she will forgive some of the debt or allow you to pay in installments. Unfortunately, this option is sometimes not viable because the owner is also in a difficult situation because of the economic problems and has no way to pay the mortgage on the property. I lose my appetite thinking about what I'm going to do, where we're going to go. I don't have the money to pay. Reported by Lourdes del Rio, this is Gianni Aponte for U News. Even though the coronavirus outbreak in New York has mostly been contained, a new cluster in Brooklyn has residents on edge. Fabiola Galindo has more on this developing story. They thought the worst was behind, but residents in Sunset Park, a small neighborhood in Brooklyn with a large Hispanic population, are growing worried about the spike in new COVID-19 infections. 
Everyone here is so close together. Some are not wearing masks. Authorities have discovered a cluster of new cases, a larger percentage than in the rest of New York. Now, more mobile testing centers were deployed. A partir de hoy, vamos a activar un plan para hacerle la prueba de coronavirus. The mayor speaking in Spanish, pleading with the community to get tested. In this district, of 3,380 COVID tests in the past two weeks, 228 were positive, a 6.7 positive rate, compared to a 0.8% throughout New York City. By the end of this week, health officials will attempt to contact the 35,000 residents of this district, either by phone or knocking on their doors, to ask them to get tested. But those who get tested complain of waiting too long to get the results. This spokeswoman says the city is working to speed up the process. It always depends on which laboratory gets the results to verify the answers. It can take from five to seven days or even faster. Here, almost half of the residents are immigrants, mainly Hispanics and Asians. There is no clear explanation for the increase in cases, but this business owner says he sees a lot of skepticism. Many clients have told me they don't believe in the pandemic, and I tell them, how can you say that when so many people are dying? Others see little options for immigrants. We don't have the luxury to work from home. We are in the first line of workers. In Brooklyn, New York, Fabiola Galindo, U News. As the pandemic continues across the country, there's a new concern, the departure of local health leaders. Jorge Hernandez explains why this problem is only getting worse. The mountain daily number of COVID-19 cases continues to overwhelm health systems, the economy, and the spirit of communities around the nation. Even health authorities and medical personnel have been affected. In the midst of all this, more than 48 health directors and officials have resigned or been dismissed throughout the country, and at least 20 have done so since June. People are not happy with what is happening and often reflected on those who they believe can be held responsible in one way or another, in this case, the health authorities. Jose Vasquez resigned from his position this week. He did so when his boss, the county judge of Star County, proposed giving him a raise, but the county commissioners refused and said they could get someone to do it for free, something he took as an insult. When someone tries to bring politics into the healthcare system, especially in the midst of a pandemic, the results are never beneficial. Authorities who are still in office, such as Dr. Ivan Melendez of Hildago County, considered the epicenter of the pandemic in South Texas, say the high level of stress is also part of this wave of defections. And the truth is that many people do not have the physical, economic, and emotional strength. They have not had the same experience I had, the joy, and it is easy to understand how they get frustrated and leave. Dr. Melinda just recovered after being diagnosed with COVID-19 and still decided to stay in his position. He says he's lucky to have a good relationship with the entire county team, something he has seen not happen in most places where resignations have occurred. No, I... There is no collaboration between the administrative and medical sides. We have seen that the highest level of leadership in the country has offended health professionals for simply expressing their scientific and factual opinion. Jorge Hernandez, U News.
For the fourth time in a week, Portland police declare a riot following demonstrations in the city. On Wednesday night, hundreds of people gather in downtown Portland. Black Lives Matter protests in Portland have been going on since late May after the police killing of George Floyd. And elsewhere in Oregon, a large crowd blocked two unmarked buses in a parking lot in the city of Bend. This after learning the buses from, were from Immigration and Customs Enforcement and two immigrants were inside. The mayor says she was told both men detained had arrest warrants. She said this was not a sweep from undocumented immigrants, but the protests are still demanding that warrants be disclosed for those arrests. And today around the country to mark five months since the death of Breonna Taylor, radio stations will pause their broadcast at 2 p.m. A Louisville, Kentucky station coordinated the event, which will feature one of Taylor's favorite songs, Everything by Mary J. Blige. Then will be a tribute to other female victims of police violence, accompanied by sounds from protests in Louisville. 26-year-old Taylor was shot and killed by police officers after they entered her apartment. No charges have been filed. More of you news after the short break. Imagine a daily newscast that speaks to you about your world in plain English. Each weekday, we partner with Hispanic America's most trusted news source to bring you the stories from home and abroad that matter to you. The Senate will turn itself into a courtroom. The private border fence is being installed. A police officer and three people were killed inside a Jewish supermarket in Jersey City. U News covers the news of your world and makes it easy to understand. Your world, your news. U News on Fusion. Welcome back to U News. The word Latinx was officially added to the Merriam-Webster Dictionary in 2018, but a new study found that just 3% of people use it to describe themselves. According to a Pew Research survey, Latinas are amongst the most likely to use that term. Joining me now is Mark Hugo Lopez of the Pew Research Center. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Carolina. So only 23% of people who identify as Latino or Hispanic have heard of this term. Can you please define it for us? So Latinx is a pan-ethnic term meant to be gender inclusive and gender neutral uh, and an alternative to uh, the term Latino, which might have a masculine connotation or Latina, which has a feminine connotation. Uh, Latinx is something that's relatively new. It's uh, been in the United States uh, and something that comes from the U.S. Uh, for the last 20 years or so, but really has risen in use in the last, say, five or six years, particularly following the Pulse nightclub shooting in Orlando back in 2016. And how did the term first come about? Well, the term first came about in the 1990s as academics at many universities sought to rename their Latino studies programs to reflect the experiences, the broad experiences of a diverse population. So, for example, you might have seen, rather than Latino studies, Latina slash O as an alternative. And Latinx emerged from that same discussion as another way to describe the multitude of diverse, diverse experiences for the population. Amongst the people who use Latinx to identify themselves, U.S.-born Latinos and women are more likely to use it. Do we know why? 
Well, part of it is it's about uh, not being identified in a masculine form. So for women, part of it is is to identify in a different way. And so Latinx is something that some choose to use, and particularly young Hispanic women, you'll see they're the ones most likely to use this. But also, this is something that comes out of uh, colleges and universities, and college graduates, and particularly English speakers, are more likely to be using the term Latinx and others. But far uh, across all of these groups, though, you'll notice that the shares that say they use it are relatively low, less than 10% in every case. Mark, Latinos are already divided between calling themselves Latinos or Hispanic, now Latinx. What does that tell you about our own struggles with self-identification in this country? Well, I, I, our surveys over the years have shown that there's a diverse number of uh, terms and labels that people use to describe themselves in a diverse population. And so, for example, we have seen that the country of origin term, Mexican, Dominicano, Cubano, uh, are the terms that most Hispanics use most often to describe themselves, even more so than Hispanic or Latino. That is interesting because while Hispanic and Latino are great summary terms to describe a diverse population, they also don't quite reflect how people see themselves, even though they may use the terms at some point or another. The same is true of Latinx. Not everybody necessarily uh, wants to use the term or uses the term, but many are aware of the term's importance and use for uh, being gender neutral and gender inclusive. And now, do you see the term Latinx growing in use as time goes on or eventually disappearing? Well, one of the things you wanted to do is to find out what awareness was like for the term. And as you noted at the beginning of our talk, um, Latinos, uh, most Latinos, 76%, uh, do not, uh, are not aware of the term. But the terms, uh, searches for the term have risen over time. So you see, for example, uh, more people searching for Latinx on Google than ever before. And that suggests that perhaps we might see an increase in use in the coming years. Well, thank you so much for your time, Mark Hugo Lopez of the Pew Research Center. Thanks again. So what is your take? Do you like to use Latinx or you dislike it? You can always go to Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Univision News and let us know what you think about that. And now turning to consumer news, grocery delivery service Instacart is teaming up with Walmart to compete with Amazon. Three years ago, Instacart's future seemed bleak after Amazon bought one of the company's biggest partners, Whole Foods. But the pandemic has been very good for Instacart, and now the service will offer a same-day delivery option at Walmart locations in four markets, Los Angeles, San Francisco, San Diego, and Tulsa, Oklahoma. And you may have noticed that Halloween-specific candies and packaging is already available in some grocery stores. Hershey has joined forces with retailers to have their products available earlier than usual. That's because candy makers fear the pandemic might impact sales during what typically is their biggest season. But not all stores are on board. Target, Walmart and Walgreens say they are holding up on Halloween candy until early in the fall. And in other news, a Ferrari that sold for more than $3 million now holds the record for the most expensive car ever sold online. The bidding ended at a record-breaking $3.8 million at an auction on August 7th. The car has its original interior and even the original paint. How beautiful.
Thanks for listening to U News, the podcast. Don't forget to follow U News on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review. And join us tomorrow for a new episode. Until then.